0: everyone and welcome to pentecost services wherever you are Uh, we're making this dvd for some of you in your congregation some of you who are shut in and unable to get out but it really is a pleasure to be with you today Uh, pentecost is an amazing day and sometimes we don't think of of all the impact it really should have in our lives and i hope to help a little bit with that today in the sermon if you would turn to first corinthians chapter six I'd like to start off with something the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. And towards the end of the chapter, he says, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, we'll start in verse 19. He says, or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit, which is in you, which you have from God and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. We have been bought at a great price. We belong to God now. He owns us. We're his completely and utterly. And to be owned by God, when God actually takes ownership of something, that means something incredible. That it means that we're separated. We're holy. Through the death of Jesus Christ, he has taken ownership of us and has placed his Holy Spirit in those that have decided to completely yield themselves to him at the waters of baptism, have their sins forgiven, and then had hands laid on them to receive God's Holy Spirit. We're holy, we're separated. And Pentecost is a beautiful day to focus on that. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be sanctified? It means to be set apart to a certain extent in a realm that God exists in, not necessarily dimensionally or in heaven or something, but in terms of a realm of holiness set apart for his purposes, his desires, his plans. That in all of our lives, what counts most is what he wants to do with it and what he wants to do in it. That's part and parcel of being holy. Uh, It's allowing God to have complete ownership of you and being considered set apart close to him for his purposes. Holiness is a crucial concept. Uh, In the Bible, uh, in our Christian walk, and it's discussed rather thoroughly in the Bible. We actually couldn't go into every facet of it, but Pentecost is a good day to set aside some time and to meditate on this very thing. Uh, Actually, if you would turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and in 2 Corinthians 7 and, yeah, there we go, verse 1. It says there, therefore, having these promises and we'll actually talk about these promises later in the sermon if I leave myself time. Uh, But it talks about being God's sons, being God's children, uh, being now his sons and daughters and those promises that we have. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. That's our task now. We are to perfect holiness. And that should be intimidating to us because God is holy. And that characteristic that he exemplifies, he and Jesus Christ, his son, above all other parts of his creation, we are somehow to perfect that. That is a chase. That is a pursuit. That's the pursuit of our lives. Uh, And I want to talk about that today because what pentecost should encourage us about among other things is that god has given us the tool that we need to do that and that is his holy spirit i want to talk about the centrality of holiness and how important it is to pursue it in our lives Uh, that's going to be my focus today and the title of the sermon is pursuing holiness pursuing holiness And I want to take a look first here at the beginning at ancient Israel. Ancient Israel was a nation in a very particular circumstance. Ancient Israel was a nation that had to pursue holiness in the means they had available to them. God's Holy Spirit was not yet poured out on them like it is on us as pictured here. And on the day of Pentecost, a day that's meant to remind us of that fact. Israel didn't have that. What they had was a ritual kind of holiness. And yet what they had, no other people on earth had. They had God living in their midst. They had a holy God dwelling in their camp. And that, when you look at it, impacted everything. Uh, we, we, there's no way on this in the time we have in this particular sermon that we could look at every aspect of this. And I would encourage you, it's a wonderful study, uh, for Pentecost to do, to go into more detail, but we're all going to look at some examples. You know, it seems to me when you read, say the, the book of Leviticus in particular, at least for me, but when you look at what Israel had to do, all the details they had to be mindful of to account for the fact that a holy God was living in their midst, it reminds me of an analogy I heard or read somewhere way too many years ago for me to remember. I remember it was early in college and I can't remember where I read it, but the analogy was that it's often when you read Leviticus that it reads like a, uh, like a manual for some sort of nuclear power plant. And I admit I haven't read a lot of manuals for nuclear power plants, but I do have some familiarity with so many of the safety things they have to go through. Uh, you have to wear a certain suit, in certain radiological circumstances uh, it has to be perhaps of a certain thickness a certain material there's different cards that people have to wear uh, they're able to read how much exposure they have had you can only be in a room for a certain amount of time and a certain amount of exposure that you can stand before you have to be out of the room uh, even if you've never been in an actual nuclear plant a lot of us have gone to the dentist and we've had our teeth x-rayed or something. And even in that case, we see the power of the atom, if you will, unleashed. I've noticed, I remember the first time it happened, it scared me a little bit. I was younger. And so we had the nurse sort of uh, position the x-ray machine at my teeth. And I had the, the film. Some of you are already saying, why do you even allow her to do that? Well, I, I do. I allow my teeth to be x-rayed. And I had the film inside my mouth waiting to x-ray my teeth and discover what terrible cavity I may have had. And then she put this lead suit on me and left the room and got out of the room. And then you hear this buzz and you realize this energy has just shot through to the film. Now, theoretically, I'm not going to tell you that I know for sure, but theoretically um, that small dose isn't in and of itself harmful. But you think of these nurses and they're exposed to it potentially every day and multiple times. So they guard themselves. They get out of the room because radiation is something potentially lethal radiation doesn't adapt to you you have to adapt to it and when you read some of these old testament guidelines they have that kind of feel that you're dealing with something powerful in your midst and you cannot take it for granted and what is that source of power that was in their midst it was a holy god Uh, let's just take a look at some of the examples leviticus chapter 22 in fact You might want to throw a bookmark somewhere in the book of Leviticus because we're going to look at a few examples there. Leviticus chapter 22. Leviticus 22. And let's start in verse 17. Leviticus 22 and verse 17. And I want to read about the sacrifices that our holy God would accept and wouldn't accept from Israel. Uh, Leviticus 22 and verse 17. We start there and it says, And the eternal spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and to all the children of Israel and say to them, Whatever man of the house of Israel or of the strangers in Israel who offers his sacrifice for any of his vows uh, or for any of his freewill offerings, which they offer to the eternal as a burnt offering, you shall offer of your own free will a male without blemish. From the cattle, from the sheep or from the goats, whatever has a defect, you shall not offer for it shall not be acceptable on your behalf. And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the eternal to fulfill his vow or a freewill offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted. There shall be no defect in it. Those that are blind or broken or maimed or have an ulcer or eczema or scabs, you shall not offer to the eternal nor make an offering by fire of them on the altar to the eternal. Either a bull or a lamb that has any limb too long or too short, you may offer as a freewill offering, but for a vow, it shall not be accepted. You shall not offer to the eternal what is bruised or crushed or torn Or cut, nor shall you make any offering of them in your land. A sacrifice had to be worthy of a holy God. He was not going to accept a defective sacrifice. He was not going to accept something that was short of everything that it should be. Uh, And the Bible makes that really clear and lives were on the line in some of these things as we'll talk about later In fact, you might hold your place here in Leviticus because we are going to come back to it I'd like to take a look at Malachi chapter 1 Because one of God's issues with Israel Was frankly their attitude in ignoring this very thing In Malachi right there towards the end of the New Testament It's cold here in the studio. I don't think my fingers are turning pages very well. Malachi chapter one, and we'll start in verse seven. Malachi chapter one and verse seven. God says, you offered defiled food on my altar, but say, in what way have we defiled you? By saying the table of the eternal is contemptible. And when you offer the blind as a sacrifice, is it not evil? And when you offer the lame and sick, is it not evil? Offer it then to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you favorably, says the eternal of hosts. You know, it's not that God is against the blind or the lame. In fact, God even talks in scripture about how he loves those who have had those kinds of challenges. And he longs to bring a world in which those kind of challenges never happen again. And those of us who have them are healed of them. But in the Old Testament, he was crafting lessons for them and for us, which we'll go into a little more detail later. And he says, you go offer this to your governor. You think your governor is going to take the sickest goat to the herd that you just didn't want for yourself. So you decided to give it to him. He says, not me. You can't offer those things to me. A holy God. A little bit later, same chapter, verse 13. It says, you also say, oh, what a weariness and you sneer at it, says the eternal of hosts and you bring the stolen, the lame and the sick. Thus you bring an offering. Should I accept this from your hand, says the eternal, but cursed be the deceiver who has in his flock a male and takes a vow, but sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the eternal of hosts, and my name is to be feared among the nations. Now, a couple of things to keep in mind, and I'm going to preview, I guess, a point later a little bit. To make sure that some of us watching this don't think that God is just somehow narcissistic, that he's just one of those guys that has to have the best. He's all about me, 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 me. Even though God sounds like he's about me, 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 he's not. He's all about us, 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 or you, 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 you. He's about us. And just as actually earlier today, uh, uh, Mr. Robinson and I were talking here at uh, headquarters, that we tend to become like that, which we tend to focus on. And God is trying to focus on them for who he is and what he is, not for his own benefit, but for ours. And he's trying to point out, he's not, it's not that the people don't have anything better and they're simply offering the best of what they have. What he's saying in cursed is a man who has exactly what you're supposed to offer to a Holy God. And instead gives me something else. Gives me the lame or gives me the sick instead of what you're trying to hold on to that was the law for sacrifices they had to be worthy of at least of a worthy nature let's all pretend nothing can truly be worthy of God in terms of these kinds of things but they had to be of a worthy nature to qualify as a sacrifice to be a sacrifice for a holy God Uh, Let's take a look at another element of holiness that God talks about in the Old Testament. Let's talk about cleanness. And I'm going to jump back to Leviticus because I took my own advice and I marked Leviticus in my Bible. So, again, you might want to keep a finger there or a piece of paper or something. Maybe you're sitting next to one of your kids, have him hold his hand in the page. That'd probably be distracting. Uh, Leviticus chapter 22. We're going to start in verse 1. Leviticus 22 and verse one. And what I want to talk about is cleanness, cleanness versus uncleanness. And we're going to read a good bit of this passage. Leviticus chapter 22, starting in verse one, it says here, then the eternal spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons, that they separate themselves from the holy things of the children of Israel and that they do not profane my, sorry, yeah, separate themselves from the holy things, of the children of Israel, and that they do not profane my holy name by what they dedicate to me. I am the eternal. Say to them, whoever of all your descendants throughout your generations who goes near the holy things which are uh, near the holy things which are which the children of Israel dedicate to the eternal while he has uncleanness upon him, That person shall be cut off from my presence. I am the eternal. Notice he keeps returning to this. One of the best sermons I've ever heard on this uh, topic of God's statement, I am the eternal, was actually by Mr. Gerald Weston in Kansas City once. Why does he keep pointing us back to that? It's a deeper thing than I can discuss in detail here, but part of it is this. He needs them to understand who he is, who our God is. Because we don't understand who he is. We don't know who we're supposed to emulate. He says, I am the eternal. Again, verse four, whatever man of the descendants of Aaron, who is a leper or has a discharge, shall not eat the holy offerings until he is clean. And whoever touches anything made unclean by a corpse or a man who's had an emission of semen or whoever touches any creeping thing by which he would be made unclean. Or any person by whom he would become unclean, whatever his uncleanness may be, the person who has touched any such thing shall be unclean until evening, and shall not eat the holy offerings unless he washes his body with water. Uh, let's read just a little bit more. It says, And when the sun goes down, he shall be clean, and afterward, he may eat the holy offerings because it is his food. Uh, He has other details. He talks about dead animals and things like that, but let's just go ahead and stop here. We'll probably have the gist by now. He's saying, if you're going to eat of the offered things, you're going to partake of the holy things. He told them, then you yourselves must be separate and holy. And he talks about those conditions that could change that he talks about those conditions that could change that and that was contact with an unclean thing part of the lesson here is a lesson that every holy people need to know and we saw it burrowed into the life of Israel we saw it ingrained in their practice in the fiber of their characteristics and their attention and that is that uncleanness spreads It's interesting how it didn't work backwards. Uncleanness spreads. In fact, that point is made really well in the book of Haggai. Uh, If you turn to Haggai also towards the back of the Old Testament. Again, keep your place in Leviticus. We are coming back. But the prophet Haggai makes a really important point. Or I'll say God makes the point through the prophet about this very thing. Haggai chapter 2. And we'll start in verse 11. We read here, thus says the eternal of hosts. Now ask the priests concerning the law saying, if one carries holy meat in the fold of his garment and with the edge, he touches bread or stew, wine or oil or any food. Will it become holy? Then the priest answered and said, no. Understand what he's saying here. He says, so the priest have in the fold of his garment, this holy object. And then if you happen to just grace, he says with the edge, you just happen to touch something else while you're moving with it. Does somehow the holiness now, suddenly that's holy and that's holy. Does it make all those things holy? He says, what does the law say? There's a reason we're pointed to the law. And they say, no, it doesn't. He's trying to bring out the very lesson that I'm trying to bring out here. It's one reason I like this passage. Then he gives the flip side. Verse 13, he says, And Haggai said, If one who is unclean because of a dead body touches any of these, will it be unclean? So the priests answered and said, It shall be unclean. They recognized this very lesson. Holiness doesn't spread by accident like that. One thing when it comes to holiness, it just doesn't spread accidentally. Uncleanness spreads that's part of its nature. Uh, We're past the days of unleavened bread, but surely some of you in your studies or your sermons talked about how a little leavening leavens the whole lump. Uncleanness, that is part of its nature. It spreads. The holy is contaminated by contact with the unclean. Uh, It's not that the holiness spreads to the unclean, rather the uncleanliness spreads to that which is holy. Uh, Let's look at another aspect of holiness in the Old Testament that we should pay attention to, and that is food. Turn back again to Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 11 this time. I should have done a quiz for the children in the audience. You know, what chapter is it where we learn about clean and unclean animals? I've already said it, but if the kids weren't listening, now they've been asked. Uh, Leviticus 11. Ooh, we can still ask them, what's the other chapter uh, in which you can read about some of these things? And yeah, we'll talk about that. Um, Leviticus chapter 11. And here in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44. It's actually at the end of the detailing of clean and unclean animals. Um, here in this chapter that covers them all again, there's, they're talking about in other places here and there, but uh, this is really our go-to chapter for where we kind of see it all laid out. And after talking about clean and unclean animals, what does it say in Leviticus chapter 11 and verse 44? It says, for I am the eternal, your God, you shall therefore consecrate yourselves and you shall be holy for I am holy. Neither shall you defile yourselves with any creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Here, it was so much more than really just a matter of our health and a matter of simple obedience to God. It was also part and parcel for Israel of living with this holy God in your midst, that you could become unclean uh, and defile yourself ceremonially, not just physically, not just spiritually for wanting such things even, But ceremonially, you could ruin your uh, ability to have contact with God in the ways that were prescribed for them in the Old Testament. That difficulty, that stuff spread. Uh, God says, you be holy like I'm holy. You be separate. You be set apart for my purposes and don't allow even your food to cause you to be unclean. There's so many different examples we could look at. We're not going to go through all of them. Uh, The tithe is holy that money that we set apart that god commands uh that is set apart that is sacred it's holy it's for god's purposes only it's not for our purposes uh you can read about that for instance in leviticus 27 i mean there's you can read about in the bible don't take my word for it Uh, the sabbath is holy time we read about it in exodus chapter 20. it's set apart the seventh day of the week It's not a day for us to decide what do I simply want to do with the day without worrying about what God wants to do with the day. Rather, we have to have in mind on that day, above all others, what would God want me to do today? Because it's holy to him. It's set apart to him. And we can read about the punishments on those who just casually decided to throw aside the Sabbath. And treat it like the other six days, the non-holy days, the days that aren't set apart. People say, oh, I guess you don't treat all days as holy. Of course, we do to a great extent. We'll even get into a little bit of that in principle in the latter part of the sermon. But at the same time, yes, we don't sin on any day, but there is a day set apart for God, that seventh day that is set apart in a way that the other days simply are not. And if we fail to treat it, if they failed to treat it as truly a day that's special to him, that he owns, that means something to him, then there are consequences for that. There's consequences in our lives today that were very lethal end-of-life consequences for Israel uh, in that particular administration of God's law in Israel at that time. The fact is God was holy. The Old Testament rings with that example with these kinds of lessons that God is set apart, that God is above, that God is sacred, that he is holy. Bringing you back to the power of the Adam Part of the reason that they have all of these restrictions on our clo- on your clothes on on handling times on how close you can be to radioactive material is because it is something powerful. Uh, some of you might remember the tsunami that happened in Japan really only a handful of years ago. it really wasn 't that long ago. Uh, I should have looked up the year before I came. I think it was two thousand and ten though i 'm not completely sure two thousand and ten or eleven I think it was two thousand and ten but that tsunami and part of the earthquake and all the rest, all that associated with that damaged a nuclear power plant there in Japan. And I remember that was the news for days. What was going to happen in this nuclear power plant? The reaction was just going wild. Part of nuclear energy is you have to keep it contained and controlled. You have to keep this, a uh, a boundary on it. Uh, you have to make sure it doesn't run out of control. And with the, apparatus damage with all of that going on, there was this concern that it was truly going to melt down because you can't believe the heat uh, that those kinds of processes can generate. And even then they were worried about it leaking into the water systems. In fact, I've heard tales. I couldn't tell you if they're true or not, though. I think I heard them from reputable sources that there have been evidences of that radiological contamination even found on the coast of the United States here and there in some of the fish, etc. cetera. The power of the atom is not something that's going to adapt to you. You have to adapt to it. And that's also the lesson about holiness in the Old Testament. God isn't adapting to us. We adapt to him. Again, in the context of the Old Testament and the worship as it was created, as God crafted it in the Old Testament, I think one of the most powerful lessons for that, at least for me, is in Leviticus chapter 10. It's one of my favorite lessons for this particular, uh, uh, this particular aspect of dealing with a holy God in your midst. It's at Leviticus chapter 10. When you read of Leviticus chapter 10, you have to understand Leviticus chapter 9. Uh, it actually talks about setting apart Aaron and his family. It really is actually uh, uh, impressive. And boy, if you were a part of Aaron's family, I mean, that was the lineage of the high priest. Uh, The the priest there, you really were set apart. Um, Maybe that went to the heads of some. I don't really know. But being in that position, that privileged position, to be one who had to come into proximity with God on behalf of the people also carried with it a burden. The fact is, again, you adapt to God. He doesn't adapt to you in this way. We can talk a little bit about that a little bit here at the end. But in Leviticus chapter 10, we read this story. Verse one, it says, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, each took his censer and put fire in it, put incense on it and offered profane fire before the eternal which he had not commanded them. Now, sometimes I have to step back and make sure I explain this. Profane fire doesn't mean it was something disgusting. Uh, it doesn't mean that uh, they, they took incense and they somehow made it out of animal refuse or, or dead bodies or something. Uh, the word profane has come to mean just strongly offensive to us and our senses in our cultures today. But biblically, it's a different definition. Frankly, it's the right definition. Profane is that which was offensive to God. That's what should still be profane in our society. But regrettably, like all things, we're defining them in terms of us and not in terms of our creator. Nadab and Abihu offered profane fire. What made it profane? It says here that it was that which he had not commanded them. Now, we could speculate a lot. In fact, I know a lot of good teachers in the church that probably have very firm ideas about that. But let me just keep things in generalities. What could make it profane? Was it incense offered at a time that God had not designated? Uh, Had they been presumptuous and thought, well, God gave us this recipe for the incense. But boy, I think this will be better. I think this will smell sweeter. I think the people will love it. I know God said, do it this way. But I really think it ought to be done this way. Regardless, the key is it wasn't what God commanded Maybe they were simply careless. Maybe they were going to do it God's way, but they just kind of threw things in and weren't really paying attention. But the lesson was incredible. And God often tries to teach powerful lessons at the beginning uh, when he's trying to make a point. Uh, if you think about, for instance, those who lied to Peter in the book of Acts, how they died on the spot. You know, if everyone that's lied to a leader in God's church died, there wouldn't be a whole lot of people left in the world. Uh, God makes Big lessons at the beginning of things. And this was the beginning of Aaron's family's priesthood. And so he tries to make a point in the most dramatic way he can. So what happens? Verse 2. So fire went out from the eternal and devoured them, and they died before the eternal. Right there on the spot, they go to offer profane fire. And miraculously, fire comes out from God there at the tabernacle and consumes them on the spot. Why? Read the next passage. It says in verse 3, And Moses said to Aaron, Moses had to carry this lesson to the father of these two men. i say young men, but we'll say men. He said, This is what the Eternal spoke, saying, By those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy. And before all the people, I must be glorified. We don't have to ask ourselves what their mistake was. God makes it explicit. He says, they failed to regard me as holy. And it says, so Aaron held his peace. He actually didn't he just he he shut up and didn't didn't complain about it because that's one of the central lessons of all of this in the Old Testament. Those who come near God have absolutely to regard him as holy. And it's just like again in my mind the power of the Adam the Adam doesn't adapt to us we have to adapt to it. And when it comes to God's holiness, he doesn't somehow reduce that for us. Rather, he expects us to adapt. Now, we know because the apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 1 and verse 10 that all of these things were written down as lessons for us on whom the ends of the age are come. All these things were written for us, not so that we can build a tabernacle and start mixing incense or sacrificing animals. Um, These are meant for our lives today. They're meant to teach us lessons. And so let's consider those lessons. Let's kind of translate some of this. You know, consider Pentecost. Where does Pentecost happen? Uh, We had Passover, you know, sometime back. uh, Passover, picturing Christ's sacrifice. Our sins forgiven, taken away from us. So we have even the opportunity uh, to become vessels of something wonderful. We have the Days of Unleavened Bread which picture the only rational and truly necessary response to the act that Christ gave in his sacrifice, which is to repent, to turn away from sins and toward godliness. Uh, That's part of that lesson of the days of unleavened bread is to turn. How do you respond to Christ's sacrifice? You turn away from sin and towards God. Those, versions of quote-unquote Christianity out there that don't do the Days of Unleavened Bread have cut off the message. They think they're responding to the sacrifice of Christ and they're not because you have to respond and God tells us how to. But if that's all we had, we wouldn't be able to respond very well. Pentecost pictures the day when we have that special aid, the Holy Spirit in accomplishing that full and complete turnaround it's interesting things don't change Jesus Christ is the same yesterday today and forever it says so in Hebrews chapter 13 he expected the people to be holy to be around him then he expects us to be holy to be around him today Uh, and we need to understand that let's turn to uh, Matthew chapter 5 Matthew chapter 5 Consider how we start out. I know how I started out when I was baptized. Uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, right? I wanted to turn to God. I was repenting. I wanted to change. Uh, and I was a carnal guy. Now, some of you out there might feel you still are, you know, and indeed, I know I'm still growing. I know that I'm far from perfect. I do believe I've come further along since then over the last 20 some odd years. Do I take credit for that? I give credit to Jesus Christ for anything that's worthwhile in my life uh, and then ask him to help me work on the rest. But that's where we are today. You know, on the other side of Pentecost is trumpets, where we see the work being done perfected. But where are we now today at Pentecost? We're between the turning and the perfection. We're in the middle of the work that is being done in us. In Matthew chapter five and verse 48, we see that Jesus Christ is consistent. Matthew five 48, we're told by our savior, therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. That should be intimidating, right? Be perfect, be complete, be utterly complete, lacking nothing. That's an intimidating statement. If it's not intimidating, I guarantee you we're not thinking. That should be an intimidating statement. Now, on one hand, he's consistent. What did he say to Abraham? If you go back to Genesis, he says, walk before me and be blameless. That's in Genesis chapter 17 and verse 1. God asks nothing of us that he didn't ask of the very father of the faithful. Walk before me and be blameless. Now, yes, we have the forgiving sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Through that sacrifice, we have access to God's forgiveness when we stumble and when we fall and we go to him and repent. But it doesn't change that he does expect us to get up and keep on walking to pursue the holiness of that we continue to fall short of from time to time. There are those that want to lie about that and say, well, the reason Christ said you shall be perfect is because he wants you to know you can't be perfect. So don't even try. And that's a lie. That's a lie from Satan, the devil. It's at the end of a chapter that is all about doing the right thing. It's all about not doing the wrong thing, not doing sin, but doing the right thing. What person who calls himself a Christian can in sincerity of heart and right mind say that this verse, verse 48, is not about action, not about what we do, when it's preceded by an entire chapter about things we're supposed to do, a chapter that addresses actions and choices. That's ridiculous, and that is a lie of Satan the devil. When he says be perfect, he is saying, I want you to strive to be perfect. And that is part of what Pentecost is all about. It's the encouragement that we're not alone in our striving for perfection. Otherwise, we are doomed. Otherwise, we are doomed. But rather, God is in it with us because he's in us. And all those lessons of the Old Testament have their place in our lives today. Just as Paul said, there are things we learn from them. Let's consider some of them. We talked about sacrifices first. Recall, he was talking about, you know, no lame, no blind, nothing like that. We'll turn to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. Right out of the gate, Romans chapter 12 and verse one. Paul says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. You present yourself as a sacrifice acceptable to God. This is the apostle Paul. He could probably quote the book of Leviticus in his sleep. Wouldn't be surprised if he did mumble parts of the book of Leviticus in his sleep. And what he says is you live your life as a sacrifice to God, as if you were going on the altar, as if you were an acceptable sacrifice. And he knew what that meant. That meant blameless. That meant not crippled or spotted or having a cut or a sickness. Now, of course, he's not just talking. He's not talking about physical ailments. Paul himself, we know, suffered from some kind of physical difficulty. He's talking about our spiritual condition. What kind of sacrifice Are we striving to offer to God? Hopefully we are seeking to be an acceptable sacrifice, which he simply qualifies as being a reasonable service. God says, you don't want to put any effort into it. You know, do that for your governor, do that for your president, you know, do that for your teacher, do that for your parents. What do you think they're going to think? He says, I'm God. The sacrifices given to me have to be holy. Like I'm holy. Is something we need to pursue. Now, again, that is part of the blessings of Pentecost and all the holy days, Passover, the days of unleavened bread and Pentecost because they picture we're not in that alone. I won't turn there for the sake of time, but I will reference it. What is Jesus Christ doing in our lives right now? What is he doing for the entire church? His bride that he looks forward to marrying uh, on that day. What is he doing now? We read about it in Ephesians chapter five. He's working that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. That's from Ephesians chapter five. You can take a look, at verse twenty-seven. Really, the whole passage, of course, is beautiful. But uh, that particular is from verse twenty-seven. We have God's forgiveness through the sacrifice that our future husband made on our behalves. But more than that, we have him working in our life today. We have him digging his fingers into our soul and our spirit and our minds and our hearts and working to make us that. So our task is not just to accept God's forgiveness, but to also embrace the work he's doing in us to feed it. Uh, to do what we can to have our part working with our fiance, if you will, to accomplish what he's crafting in us. Now, let's consider the unclean, the lessons of the unclean. What do we discern about the unclean and avoiding that? Uh, let's turn to Second Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians in chapter 6. Whoops i in 1 Corinthians, sorry about that. 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, and we'll start in verse 14. The Apostle Paul tells us, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Belial? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. He's applying that circumstance that Israel lived under that affected every aspect of their lives. It affected what they touched and didn't touch. It affected what they ate and didn't ate. If you actually read Deuteronomy, a bit delicate, I wasn't going to go into it. It even affected where you went to relieve yourselves. Because it says explicitly there's a holy God in your camp. And you can't just do anything you want anywhere. It affected everything. And he's taken that line, that, that lesson, and applying it directly to us. Saying that I want to dwell in you and walk among you. You have to be a holy people. He says, therefore, come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean and I will receive you. I will be a father to you and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. Because if we truly want to be his sons and daughters in this world, I want to be his son. I want him to look at me right now here in this studio and think, that's my son. His looking at me and saying that is important to me. That's what he's saying. If it really is important to you, he says, then avoid what is unclean. Treat it like it's something that actually means something to you. You know, it's interesting. Peter describes us as living stones. God is very similar to what it says here. God is building a temple out of us. That's another lesson we need to consider. When it comes to the holiness of God, we are his temple. When you actually read in the Old Testament about what he went through to cleanse that temple, to call his temple holy, how do we consider ourselves to be a part of that? Are we actually willing to consider ourselves a part of that? Uh, If you read about the building of the temple, it's actually remarkable. I'm not going to go into the detail. but It talks about how everything was crafted so well and things were fit so smoothly. And you couldn't hear the sound of a hammer here and there because all the stones put together were just so perfectly crafted. Uh, Actually, it really is a remarkable story. But if you turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter three and verse 16. We read here, do you not know that you are the temple of God and that the spirit of God dwells in you? If anyone defiles the temple of God, God will destroy him for the temple of God is holy, which temple you are. You want know, to talk about these things together in terms of avoiding uncleanness and being a holy temple what was the lesson it was that uncleanness spread as holy people if we touch something unclean i'm not talking about a ham sandwich i'm talking about those things that spiritually defile us the movies that we watch the music that we allow ourselves to listen to the humor that we allow ourselves to indulge in the websites that we go to on the internet The the people that we surround ourselves with in our lives, the lesson in the Old Testament was clear. How are we affecting ourselves as living stones in the temple? Are we a clean, beautiful white stone in that regard? Are we going to start showing mold and fungus? Because uncleanness spreads. You know, I remember uh, a time early in my conversion. Uh, I want to say it might have been the summer of, I can't recall, but I was 19 or 20, somewhere around there. And I was at home and I I grew up in the world and I was at home from college and my family, I don't want to disparage my family, we were watching, they were watching something I would just say off color. Let me just say that. I'm the only one in my family who grew up in the church and I love my family very much. Uh, it was just a value shift at that point going on in my life. And we we're watching, I think, a comedian special of some sort. And I remember just laughing. Oh, it was so funny what this guy was saying. He really was. And I think he still is a very successful comedian. I, I can't recall if he's still around. I think he is. Part of why I don't know is the lesson that's coming up. And so I was just really rolling around thinking it was hilarious. And then it hit me because those things start to hit you more and more frequently. I realize I didn't want to think this was funny. I realized what I was engaging in was something that didn't reflect what a holy member of God's family here on earth should be a part of that. There was uncleanness spreading to me. And there was a, it was a really helpful point in my life because there was kind of a realization. I realized it wasn't that I could just snap my fingers and all of a sudden think these things weren't funny anymore. Now, maybe you've had a miracle like that in your life, or somehow your, your, your mind just, changes and all of a sudden something is a hundred percent distasteful to you uh that once before you indulged in that may be the case i know at least in this one case it wasn't for me uh i still thought these things were funny but what was different when i felt it was god prodding in me i, I look forward to talking to him about it one day was while i thought it was funny i knew deep down that god didn't think it was funny that God felt it was something related to the abuse of his creation, uh, that it was like a spit in his eye, that it was part of what was taking mankind further away from God and not closer to him. And it's not that he's not a God that doesn't enjoy humor. Actually, you look at some verses, God actually seems to be pretty funny at times, but not this. This was dirty and it was unclean and it was wrong. And there I was, 19 or 20, realizing that, And I realized what I had to do if I really wanted to be that living stone in the holy temple of God was I had to separate myself. I didn't run out of the house, separate myself from my family. I actually had a place I could go. If I had to, I could have driven to a restaurant or something, maybe had a little bite to eat or gone out for something until they were done. But I had to realize I had to get away from the television. I couldn't sit there because if I kept indulging in it, The uncleanness would continue to spread my heart, my mind, and I would never come to a point where I didn't think it was funny anymore. And all I know is I wanted to be that holy temple in which God shone out to other people. As silly as it sounded when we say things like that, as big as it might seem for little old fleshly us, I know that's what I wanted. I know that's what I was called to do. And I'm not pretending it wasn't a struggle. I'm not saying that, boy, the light just... Came on and all of a sudden it was easy. It was a struggle. I freely admit I really did like that stuff. But over time with the help of God's spirit in me and Jesus Christ living his life in me. It did make a big difference. Now, I look forward to other things growing and changing as well in me as we're all changing. But in that one instance, I saw that I had to separate my uh, separate myself from those things that were unclean. Actually, consider again the example of the temple. I know we're here in the New Testament and kind of translating these lessons, but I can't help myself. Go back, if you will, to 2 Chronicles chapter seven. We have the tale of the completion of the temple of Solomon in Second Chronicles chapter seven. And keep in mind that we're supposed to be God's holy temple now. Uh, one of my favorite descriptions of the tale is in second Chronicles seven after Solomon completes the dedication. What does that mean to complete the dedication? That means it was the moment the temple was holy and given to God as completely his set apart for his purposes uniquely. And God does God takes ownership and makes it holy. And we see that happen in second Chronicles seven and verse one, it says when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. Notice the priest did not have to go burn them. God took ownership and he burned those sacrifices. He was making a statement. This place is now holy. This place is mine. And it says, And the glory of the eternal filled the temple. In fact, verse 2, it says, and the priest could not enter the house of the eternal because the glory of the eternal had filled the eternal's house. So here you have the temple and God's glory just fills it to the point that it says the priest couldn't actually go in. There was no room where they could stand and be within the temple because Every square inch, every square centimeter of the ground had the presence of the holy, eternal God within that. And again, that translates. If I'm the temple of the living God, if I'm a part of that, is there some corner or closet of my life I just want to reserve to myself? where I take my unclean things that I really want to hold on to, Uh, or even just the things that are just me where I'm not really considering whether God likes them or not. And maybe I've fashioned some closet in my life and I'm allowing the glory of God to fill my life with his holiness except for that place. If I'm doing that, I am failing utterly because that's not how it works. If we're going to be the holy temple of God, he has to fill every nook and every cranny. He has to have access to, to every square inch of the floor and every square centimeter it truly does affect everything if we're going to pursue holiness we have to be all in there's not an element of our lives there's not a choice in our lives where we're allowed to just simply ignore god's concerns or god's law or jesus Christ's example teaching and way of life in fact uh turn to uh colossians chapter yeah colossians chapter 3 Building on that example there with the temple, Colossians chapter three. In Colossians chapter three and verse seventeen, oops, yeah, Colossians chapter three, verse seventeen, it says here, and whatever you do, in word or deed do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. That is gigantic. That is sweeping. That is broad and that is deep and that is high. It says, whatever you do in word or deed, what action is too small that it doesn't fall into the category of whatever you do in deed? What word? is so small or quietly spoken that it doesn't fall into the category of whatever you do in word. Uh, You can continue through the passage and he gives examples. He talks about the obligation on wives given that you want to be holy. Then what does it mean to dedicate literally everything to Jesus Christ and to God the Father? It talks about wives, talks about husbands, talks about children, talks about parents, uh, talks about bond servants. It talks about everything. And it says in verse 23, it's a small passage. I can't actually cram everything in, but that is the story of the Bible. He sums up in verse 23 again, and whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. Again, we want to preserve some areas of our life that we think shouldn't have anything to do with God. Sometimes, uh, you know what we do at work, you know, uh, Yes, you know, there's right and wrong, but this is business. This was a business decision or this was just a legal matter. Whatever you do, every single act of our business undertakings, every single choice we make in legal matters, we're always, always to consider every part of us, every corner of the temple that we represent uh, to be something holy and dedicated to God. It literally affects every choice we make. What we eat, who we're going to marry, what occupations we should have or not have. Seeking holiness is all-encompassing, like it was for Israel. It is so for us. Uh, turn to Second Corinthians. went around the horn here in a minute. Second Corinthians, Chapter 10. How complete is this dedication to holiness? How complete is our dedication in terms of pursuing holiness and being the kind of people who can have a holy God living amongst them and in their lives? To me, this is the most, the most detailed statement. It's the one that really challenges me. We've already talked about word and we've talked about deed, but then we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 verses 4 and 5. Paul says for the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ that is gigantic it's not just word it's not just deed it's our every thought our every thought is to keep in mind that we are to be a holy people set apart for a holy god that's not something small that's something huge again those who say christianity somehow isn't about action cannot defend that truly in the light of verses that say Being a Christian affects even your thoughts, that even our thoughts we have to consider as a sacrifice to God, something we want to be blameless and something we want to be pure. And don't get me wrong, I agree, that's intimidating, but it's a challenge he's willing to help us with. I'll make sure that we make that point very clear at the very end. But let me consider one more thing. You know, there's verses that that use various words. I've, let me just give you some references without turning there for the sake of time. I'll tell you what they say. For example, the word holy and hollowed, uh, there's related words. In 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16, it says there that it's written, be holy for I am holy. Uh, the Greek word there is hagios, holy. Uh, it says, be you holy for I am holy. Hagios. All right, keep that in mind. In Matthew chapter 6 and verse 9, we have what is often called the Lord's Prayer, but it's Jesus Christ's example prayer, where he says to God, "'Hallowed be your name.'" You know, the word there, hollowed, is hagiadzo, very much related in terms of making something holy, considering something holy, uh, hollowing something, making it holy. Now, why do I say that? Why do I bring up the Greek word in this? Especially uh, if I was going to bounce around in terms of how to say it earlier. Because I learned something that fascinated me and I I should have known it uh, before I read it up. And yet it just impacted me when I did. If you look at verses such as in 1 Corinthians, actually the greetings at the beginnings of Paul's letters uh, all start fairly similarly. For instance, in 1 Corinthians chapter one, starting in verse one, he says, to those who are sanctified, set apart in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Now consider the word saints. And you can go to an interlinear and take a look. Uh, What is the word there being translated saints? It's hagios again. It's the very same word that God applies to himself. It's the very same word related to how we hollow God's name. Saints is very intimately related with holiness. It's the same word in the Greek. God actually, when he calls us saints, when he calls you a saint, when he calls me a saint, he is taking a description that applies to him in a beautiful and pure and full and perfect way. And he's applying it to us. He's calling us the holy ones, the sanctified ones, the set apart ones, the saints. I don't know about you, that feels like a burden. But it's a wonderful burden to bear. You know, if you look in the Old Testament, the Israelites were learning to live with a holy God in their midst. And that's what we're here to do, to learn how to live with a holy God in our midst. But there's something very different about us that the Israelites did not have because he's living more than in our midst. If you look at the lesson of Passover, Jesus Christ sacrificed his life for us. Uh, We observed it just a few weeks ago, right? Pentecost Passover. He sacrificed his life for us. We were full of our sins and our uncleanness. We were distant from God with a gap we could not cross. And so Jesus Christ made sure that gap was crossed by paying his life. The only payment that was big enough and full enough, the life of the son of God to remove our sins from us so that we could cross the gap and be able to approach God. The days of unleavened bread, we respond to that. We recognize that which is righteous And that which is unrighteous that which is clean and that which is unclean that which is holy and that which is unholy and we turn from one to the other It is the only biblical frankly logical response to the sacrifice of Jesus Christ but then when we look at that which is holy and we look at that which is clean, and we look at that which is pure, and we look at that that God longs for us to want, it can seem intimidating. Just because we were baptized, we weren't made perfect all of a sudden. I mean, it was a new man that came out of the water in terms of that relationship with God, and yet habits are still there. Temptations are still there. Tendencies are still there. And yet we just committed ourselves to Jesus Christ to follow that standard and to make that our goal for the rest of our lives. And then comes the promise of Pentecost. It's not just that there is a holy God in the distance whom we just have to admire at a distance but recognize there's nothing of him that can happen in us. There's nothing in him of that purity and that beauty and that holiness that can be reproduced in us. He doesn't just point us to the standard as pictured in the days of unleavened bread and turning us to that standard. But unlike having a holy God living in our midst, Pentecost tells us that holy God is willing to live in, in us ourselves. That Jesus Christ Himself actually wasn't even content to simply be a fellow camper with us, but longed to be within us, to work in us. Not so we have to travel that route alone, so we can travel with Him, His arm around our shoulder, His encouragement. Because while we're pursuing holiness and hopefully running after it with everything we have, seeking to avoid the unclean, seeking righteousness and purity and goodness and the things that God truly is, as we run after that with all of our hearts and all of our souls, we have someone running right alongside us, our elder brother, Jesus Christ. Holiness is one of the most important things we can actually meditate on on the day of Pentecost. But it can become frustrating unless we remember that fundamental truth that this day pictures. Yes, we are to pursue holiness. But we have the greatest help conceivable, not simply helping us, but living and working inside of us to transform us and to finish that work along with us.